Make your way back. Good morning, family. Good morning, guys. Hey, happy Mother's Day. I want to give a shout out to my mom. Happy Mother's Day to you, mom. Thanks for having me. Thanks for loving me and praying for me. All right, open your Bibles up. Open them up to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we are this morning. Colossians chapter 3. Guys, we are going to pick up right where we left off last week. And this morning, we are going to take a look at how the Lordship of Jesus reorders the family, the physical family. Now, before we get into the passage, I need to just want to acknowledge something just really quick right off the bat. We are looking at some of the most controversial and complex verses in the entire letter of Colossians this morning. There's this part about family. Uh, there's a part about marriage. And that's going to be the main focus this morning of the message. And then there's this whole part about masters and slaves. Now, what do we do with that? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, there's a lot of ground that we have to cover today. And today is going to be a flyover, just so you know, so you're prepared. You will leave with questions that aren't answered, okay? So I just want you to be ready for that. But my hope is that we will see that Christ's Lordship creates a beautiful and a countercultural family. And so we're going to read now uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 17, all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything, for those who are your who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your, your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for your word to us. Uh, you said in Deuteronomy that these are not idle words for us, but they're our very life. And God, we need you today. We come here this morning to worship you because, in fact, we need you. We need you to reshape us into your own image. We need you to reshape our marriages and our families and our relationship with our children and work. And we need you to do that for us, Lord. We want you, Jesus, to be the Lord of all of our life. And so, God, would you please do that today? Would you start doing that work even now to glorify yourself? We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when the gospel of Jesus Christ spreads to a family or to a town or to a region of the world through Christians, it does two things at the same time. It does two things. The gospel says to that culture, yes and no. Every culture of every time of every age, it says yes and no. 
The good news that Jesus is the master and the Lord over the entire universe both affirms some things in that culture as they are, and it corrects other things towards what it needs to be. And what Paul is doing in this passage is he's taking something from the first century Greco-Roman culture that everybody in Colossae would have recognized. It's called the household code. He's taking this and he's changing it in light of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The household code was uh, how you were to manage your household in Greco-Roman times so that everything ran smoothly and everything was in apple pie order. All right? It laid out the roles in the house and how people were to relate and interact with one another so that the household could actually function and things wouldn't grind to a halt. Who does what? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to interact with someone? Well, this is, this is all laid out here. And in the Greco-Roman times, the man was the head of the house. But he was like a miniature Caesar over the house. So you have Rome and you got Caesar, right? Well, that trickled right on down to the smallest unit of society. He was the Caesar over his own home. He was the ultimate and the unquestioned authority of everything that went on in the house. Now, if you guys were here last week, take this into consideration. Paul spent the first half of chapter 3 emphasizing the equality of all people in Christ. We are equal in dignity. We are all equal in value. We are equal in the benefits of God's grace. If you like the idea of equality, you should thank a Christian for that. Because it's a revolutionary concept that they basically invented and they spread it throughout the world. But equally, equality could lead some Christians to think that the gospel and that spiritual family that we talked about last week actually could overthrow the physical family and the distinctions that God has made there. That, that, that's nothing now. The physical family could degrade into an unbalanced free-for-all and Paul's aware of this as well. So Paul's going to lay the gospel, the lordship of Christ, over each of these unbalanced ways of thinking about the family. And it's going to say yes and no. Yes, there are roles of authority and submission in the family. But no, not like Rome. Yes, there is equality of personhood. But being equal does not mean identical. Husbands are not wives. Wives are not husbands. Children aren't parents in the home. What we find when we lay the good news of Christ's lordship over all these relationships in the family is this beautiful design that God has for the family. That's the big idea. If you don't hear anything I say today, this is what I want you to hear. The lordship of Christ creates a family where everyone in the family flourishes. The Lordship of Christ creates a family where everyone in that family flourishes. There's three sets of relationships in a family that Paul addresses in the first one. We're just going to go in order. The first one is the spousal relationships. Where Christ is Lord, spousal relationships flourish. Where Christ is Lord, spousal relationships flourish. Look at verses 18 and 19 here. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives 
and do not be harsh with them. So, I don't know, in case you haven't noticed, uh, the word submit is kind of a dirty word in our culture. Anyone figure that out yet? <laughs> I don't really like that word. kind of makes us feel uncomfortable. Amen? And uh, we, that's because we kind of have a certain understanding of what that word means. So to help us understand what's being talked about, what does it mean for a wife to submit in a Christian marriage, let's talk about first what it does not mean and see if we can kind of back our way into some understanding, all right? Here's what submission does not mean. It does not mean to be a doormat that your husband walks on. It does not mean that you are to stop voicing your perspective about things in the marriage. Submission does not mean inferior in value, dignity, or capacity. The fact that Paul addresses women first and that he's addressing them directly. I don't know if you know this. He's not, direct, he's not addressing them through the husband. He's addressing them directly. And the fact that he does this is that he is crossing a huge boundary marker in that culture. Remember we talked about crossing boundary markers last week? This is a big one. He's just stepping right across that line in the authority of the gospel. He's actually drawing attention to the wife's equality and dignity when he does this. A Christian wife is not to be some weak-willed, yes, dear kind of woman that just blindly follows along with whatever her husband says. Paul qualifies submission with this phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. And so you're going to see this throughout this, this household code, so to speak. We do this, and here's the qualifier. We do this, and here's the qualifier throughout this list. Wives are never to submit to husbands when it would cause them to sin or cause them to disobey God. You're to resist that and speak to that. So what does submission actually mean? Well, submission for the Christian means to voluntarily yield to the husband's leadership in the home. That's what it means. Or you could put it another way. It simply means to recognize the leadership of your husband. That's all that it means. The role of, that's the role that the wife plays in a Christian marriage. She helps him be a leader. Now, how does that get expressed? Well, I think that it can vary from culture to culture and time to time. I mean, surprisingly, when you look at the Bible, there's very little specific details of how this fleshes out. There's some, but not a lot. And so I'm just going to give a general example. Let's say you have a husband and wife, and they're discussing a decision. It's an important decision that needs to be made, and there's, maybe there's a time limit on that. We need to make this decision at this time. And they have very different perspectives of how they're, they're coming at this problem or at this decision that they need to make. So she has a responsibility to bring her perspective and to bring her reasoning and to bring her extra information to that conversation that the husband may be completely ignorant of, in a respectful way, so that he has all the resources that he needs to make the best decision he can possibly make for the good of the family. After her will has been fully expressed, she trusts her husband to make the best decision possible. She literally trusts him. That's what it means. She voluntarily yields and prays for him because she knows that if he wins, they win. And she's rooting for him. She loves him. She even likes him. So she wants him to do well. 
So what motivates us to submit in this way? Well, Paul tells us the qualification just so happens to be the motivation. Paul says, the Lord. The Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. He refers to the Lord seven times in just nine verses. I don't know if you picked up on that when we read this. And he is always talking about the Lord Jesus when he mentions the Lord. Jesus was equal in essence. He was equal in divinity, in dignity, and value to God the Father. There was nothing weak about Jesus. Like he didn't submit to the Father because he was weaker and they had an arm wrestling match and he lost, right? That's not how that played out. He voluntarily did that because he was equal in every way. There was nothing inferior than Jesus. He wasn't second class. He fully expressed his will to the Father. You remember that on the night that he was going to die? Do you remember that? Father, if there be another way, let this cup pass from me, right? He is fully expressing his will. Yet he chooses to submit to the will of the Father, even though it is painful. It was going to be painful for him. Get this, guys. Jesus submitted for you. He submitted for you. He submitted in sacrifice for you. Yes, you specifically. Jesus did not consider submitting and serving an attack on his dignity at all. And in response, God the Father glorified him. It says in Philippians chapter 2 that he gave him the name that was above all names. What are we doing this morning? We're honoring women, right? We're honoring the mothers. Christian wives, when you submit in this way, you are literally mirroring Jesus in the relationship to an unbelieving world. You're speaking to them and saying, Jesus is Lord, and it is good. And they go, what? Why do you do it like that? Because he's the Lord, and he is good. Let's go to the husbands. Colossians Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There's no, there's no place, that, at least that I've found, in ancient Greek or uh, Jewish household codes that a husband is instructed to love his wives. Did you know that? That's just a little fun fact for you. There's nowhere that we have written down that husbands are instructed to love their wives. This is absolutely unheard of in any culture except in Christian writings. And it's revolutionary. It's quite revolutionary. Christian husbands are to lead the home. That's their role. But they're not to lead as miniature sawed-off Caesars. All right? We don't lead like dictators barking out ultimatums and demands. So let me say this really plainly because Paul says it plainly. Brothers, watch your tone and volume to your wife. Watch your tone and volume to your wife. Christian men do not lead by intimidation. Christian men do not lead by threats or by insults or denigration. That is how a godless world leads. And we know God. We're Christians, right? We lead with love. 
That is how we are to lead. Paul uses the word agape here for love. You know what agape love is, right? Agape is the kind of love that is self-giving. It is self-sacrificing. It's the kind of love that Christ physically demonstrated in the upper room to his disciples when he washed dirty feet and later on the cross when he washed our dirty sins with his own blood, by the way. With his own blood. Jesus, who had all the authority and he had all the leadership of God, chooses to use his authority to serve us. Sacrifice for us. Place our good ahead in line of his own good. In fact, to his own detriment. He uses his authority to make our lives sweeter. Isn't that amazing? That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what's getting laid over all of these relationships. Men, that is how we are to lead our wives. Christian husbands are to be servant leaders who sacrifice for their wife's good. This means that when there's a decision to make, you take the time. As long as it takes, you take the time to talk that out with her. Oh, and by the way, listen for her input and her wisdom and perspective. She may know things that you don't know. That's what it means. It means that we see what needs to be done to help out with our household. That might be scrubbing dishes. That may be changing diapers, right? Scrubbing toilets, making a meal. We step up to the plate and we do that, guys. That's what it means. To be a servant leader means to, to lead with love. That means to consider how your schedule is affecting the well-being of your bride. And then you use your authority to change that where it needs to be changed so that she might flourish. That's what it means. And by the way, that is how you become a safe man that your wife wants to submit to. She wants to voluntarily acknowledge your leadership. And we can only do this as men for our wives when we understand that Christ the Lord did that for us. And he did it in spades. Wives who live under this kind of leadership, they absolutely flourish. They're beautiful. So the second set of relationships is parental, where Christ is Lord. The parent-child relationships flourish. Let's look at verses 20 and 21 here. Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they be discouraged. Children under Roman law were considered property of their father. Did you know that? Isn't that just a loving, sweet relationship with dear old dad? <laughs> hey, boy, go mow that yard. Not, not very much close, loving, affectionate relationship back in those days. Legally, they, the children were not better off, much better off than slaves in the house, although they were worse off than the wives. Children were to please their father and not bring shame on the family name. You're to do what dad says. You're to do his job. You're just going to apprentice right along with him, and that's how you brought honor to the family name. The idea, the very idea that children would be addressed directly and not through the father in this scripture was, would be unheard of back then as well. Paul is crossing another cultural boundary marker. 
And he didn't seem to have a problem doing it. Paul assumes that children would be present in the worship gathering. He assumes that they, and he believes that they are to behave as acting members of the covenant community in the new covenant. They can hear, they can understand what God has to say for them. They have a place, they have value, they have dignity. And by him speaking to them in this way, he is emphasizing and highlighting to everyone who would be reading this letter out loud to that fact. In homes where Christ is the Lord, he truly is the boss, children still under the roof of their parents are expected to obey both their mother and father, as he says, in everything. What does that mean? It means that children don't get to choose to obey when they agree with their parents. And then they can disagree, or when they disagree, they can disobey. And they have the freedom to do that. They don't get to do that, he's saying. Children are to obey in everything, even when they don't understand why their parents are telling them to do what they're telling them to do, or even when they don't like it, because God has put the parents in authority over them. And this brings honor to their maker. But there is a qualification, which is also the child's motivation in this verse for obedience. What's the, what is the qualification? For it pleases the Lord. Everything in parenting is going to be pointing back to the Lord. Everything in our marriage is going to be pointing back to the Lord. Are you guys getting this? That's what's driving all of this stuff. That's what informs all of this. Obviously, children with abusive parents or parents that are instructing their children to sin against God are not expected to obey their parents. Why? Because that does not please the Lord at all. In fact, it upsets him. So they're not expected to do that. The principle here is that the children are not to live to make their parents proud of them because that would be idolatry. You do what I say because it makes me look good in society. It makes me look good at church. That really embarrassed me when you did that and said that. That's not, how ch- that's not why children are to obey their parents. They do it because they want to honor the one who made them and the one who loves them the most and the one is who redeeming them. That is why. Requiring obedience of our children is not meant to be a means of showing off that you're a perfect parent. Look how they can just sit still and be good. That's not the purpose of it. That's the purpose of what a lot of people think it is, but that's not what the scripture says. It's not a means to keep them, keep yourself from being embarrassed by their behavior. That's kind of a real selfish way to parent, isn't it? You're here for me. Right? You're here to make me happy and look good. Requiring obedience in a Christian family is the way that we as parents point our children to Christ, the goodness of Christ, the grace of Christ, the blessings of Christ that they have received and they are receiving. Children have received grace from the Lord by the mere fact that they've been placed in a Christian home. That's why God places children in families. By the fact that they could have been born in any family, but they were born in your family as a Christian, they get a benefit. They're getting some kind of an advantage to that. And as parents, we're to help them acknowledge that and see that. They don't know that. They don't know any different, right? They are going to be shown in a Christian home the way of life. And you're saying, choose life, young one. Here's the way of death. Here's the way of life. Not this way, loved one. This way. And that's an advantage they have over children that are not born into Christian homes. 
That's a common grace they have. And in light of this grace, in light of this kindness Christ has given them, it is fitting that they obey their parents in the Lord. They're not, the, they're not doing that for just their parents. It's the Lord. They're looking beyond that. They're looking to the things above. Remember last week? So live in light of the things that are above. And so that's how we're trying to help them see life, guys. This is exactly, by the way, what Jesus did for you and me. Did he not? Jesus was a son to God the Father, right? And he had an earthly mother and father, did he not, that he obeyed? Jesus said, I have come down not to do my own will, but what? But the will of the Father. He said, I only do what I see my dad doing. That's why I'm doing it. And why did he do that? So that we could know God better, so that we could be brought into his family, so that we could be adopted into his family. Christ obeyed his father perfectly. He obeyed his father in everything, if you like, for us who do not obey our parents in everything, so that we could be brought into his family. Just let that bake your brain for a minute. Isn't that amazing? What love is that? That's amazing love. Children, when you obey your parents, you are acting like Jesus in the relationship. I want you to hear that and know that. It is not a low thing for you to obey your parents. And you are not a low thing when you obey your parents. It is a high calling to obey them, and it brings honor to the one that has blessed you and saved you. Let's go on to fathers and parents. Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Both parents obviously play a role in nurturing and raising the children. The rest of the New Testament speaks about this, but the dads play a primary role in shepherding the hearts of the child, whether he is absent or present. He's going to make an indention. He's going to make an impact on that child. So our roles as Christian Fathers, in particular, is not limited to supplying food and shelter and money for soccer practice, okay? Like, that, like, there's way more than that. We don't do that and say, okay, we're done. And it's way more than when you get home from a 10-hour shift at work and you dole out discipline for all the misbehaving that's gone on while you were gone, all right? There's way more to that as a Christian father. Christian fathers are to initiate conversations, not just bark out orders. They're to initiate conversations about character, conversations about spiritual matters with our children in order to shape them into children who actually want to obey their parents. That's the work that we do. And Paul instructs us to do this in a very specific way. He says, do not provoke your children because they will be discouraged. Don't always ride them. That's provoking them. Always point out everything that they did wrong. Or they're going to get discouraged. It means this. It means set clear and consistent expectations that aren't always changing depending on how your mood is or what day of the week it is. This is how we do this. This is the consequence of doing this. And it's, it's just staying. You can count on, on me to be faithful. You can count on me to be consistent. It means that when you discipline, and you should, when you discipline your children, make it clear that you are not doing this because you are angry or you're personally getting revenge on them. 
You maybe missed the game. We took you to Disneyland, and you're going to throw a fit, and now we ruined it. That's not, when you, that's not why you're disciplining them. You need to make that clear to them. Make it clear you're disciplined because you love them. It's not, I love you, daughter, but I have to discipline you. Right? Are you tracking with me? It is, I love you, and so I'm going to discipline you. Make it clear that you want to save them from death. And that's what sin brings and disobedience brings, right? It's a high calling to be a parent. You're lovingly on a rescue mission, and you're saying, no, come away from the edge of the cliff back to where there is life and blessing. I love you. I love you. Don't use your size, your larger vocabulary, or your expertise in wielding sarcasm and eye rolls to train your children or to crush their spirits. When we can do that, right? We've all done that, right? You can out-talk them when they're little. You can get them all kind of mixed up. You can be sarcastic, and they won't know, but you know it, right? And they can go away just feeling crushed. It's really easy to do. Those gonna, Paul says, look, they're going to start believing, I can't ever please dad. I can never please mom. So why bother? I mean, if I'm going to get in trouble, I might as well get in trouble because I was doing something worth it, right? That's the logic. That's where it goes. We need to watch this. Instead, here's another way. Catch your children doing some things good as much as you catch them doing things that are wrong. Put some positivity in that conversation and then point them to Christ. Point them to the goodness of God. Say, look, you know, I noticed that your sister asked you to leave her alone, get out of her face. No, literally, you did. And you did that. You didn't scream at her. You, at, you left her alone. Way to go. You know, you were acting like Christ then. You were really loving your sister. Way to go. I saw that. Son, I saw you taking care of business, doing those chores that dad gave you to do, mom gave you to do. You went up and you just did it. You did the best that you could. I mean, yeah, the bed's still a little lumpy. Hey, great. You went up, you did it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Way to go. That's how a man leads. It's a servant leader. You're being a man. Daughter, I heard that you are, the way that you handled that conversation with that girl, she was wanting to gossip about that other girl, and you said, nah, I, I don't need to hear that. I don't need to hear that. You really showed her some grace and that other girl grace. Way to go. Way to go. You're being like Christ. I'm proud of you. Parents, we must see, use our God-given authority to shape and shepherd our children toward the adults that God has called them to be. We parent with the end in mind. You are not raising boys. You're raising future men. You're not raising girls. You're raising future women. And that's how we need to see that in the Lord. In the Lord, we parent them this way, not to make our life quieter and easier for the next three hours, right? We do it for the rest of life. We do it with the end in mind. And so that's how we start now. Just like Jesus, we do not give up our authority as parents, but we do use it for their enrichment, not our enrichment, not our ease and comfort. That's how you lead. Last set of relationships we're going to look at is going to, we're going to apply it to work. Where Christ is Lord, work relationships flourish. 
where Christ is the Lord, work relationships flourish. So we read this, and we read words in the scripture like slave and master, and as, as Americans, we think of our country's practice of slavery in the 19th century South, that awful uh, practice. And so naturally, our mind goes back to that. We remember that these verses were actually used at that time to support that wicked institution. And so naturally our minds go back to that when we read these verses. So we have to do some background work to understand this passage correctly before we can even hope to try to apply that to our lives today. So two things that I want us to keep in mind. The first is this. Paul, in these verses, Paul is not taking a step back and commenting on the institution of slavery in Greco-Roman days. That's not what he's doing. Paul is writing to new Christians who are worshiping Christ on Sunday, and they want to know, what do I do on Monday when I go out and live in a pagan culture that operates under an entirely different value system than the kingdom of God? Because they don't care that I'm new in Christ now. So how do I live my life now in light of both where I live and what Christ has done to me? And that's his focus in these verses. You need to keep that in mind. I will say this as a quick aside. In this passage, and particularly in the letter he writes to Philemon, where this is, he's mentioned, Paul does lay down the seeds, and he does lay down the groundwork that will ultimately and thoroughly undermine the institution of slavery. So second thing we need to keep in mind, Paul is not concerned with addressing the institution of slavery in part because Greco-Roman slavery was very different than 19th century slavery in the South. I didn't say it was good. I just said it was very different in its form and, fu- form and function. And because of it, it was so different, it's really not Paul's main focus right now. So the slaves that are being addressed in this passage, I believe that there was a, was a lot of Christians in Colossae were slaves made up a a good chunk of the population in this church. But the ones that are addressed in this passage, first of all, they were not in a permanent, lifelong situation. Most of them were slaves for 10 to 15 years, and then their master set them free. They could also purchase their own freedom earlier. A A lot of them did that about seven years. Secondly, they earned wages just like a job, and they got to keep the money, which is how they could purchase their freedom. So they worked a job and kept the money. Thirdly, they had some rights. They had the right to marry whoever they wanted. They had the right, to ha- the right to have kids, as many kids as they wanted. They had the right to raise a complaint against their master if they wanted. They actually lived in the household with the whole family, and they benefited from that situation as well. Fourthly, these slaves were, at that time, literate. They could read, and therefore they were very well educated. They knew a lot of stuff. They were doctors. They were physicians. They were accountants. They were city planners, city architects, managers of estates. So you understand it's different in the sense that it's like it's not this little, like, uh, low-class part of society. You would see this throughout all the strata of society back in those days. And so some of those details that I just listed off sound very similar in principle to an employer-employee relationship, don't they? Except maybe the exception is like your, your boss didn't say, I hire you, now move in with me, right? <laughs> we, didn't exp- we won't experience that probably. But we've all worked jobs with someone that had authority over us. And they told us what they wanted us to do and how they wanted us to do it and when they wanted it done, right? 
We've all worked in type situations like that. We've all had jobs where we thought we were getting paid very well, or we weren't getting paid what we thought we needed to get paid to live. Where we had bosses that were in authority over us that were pretty mean bosses, and they abused the authority they had. And we had other bosses that were really great, and they really took care of us. And so even though there's not this one-to-one correspondence, I think that we can apply these instructions to the relationship between employee and employer today. And so let's go to verses 22 and 23. We're talking about the employee. He says, bond servants or slaves obey in everything those uh, who are your earthly masters. He's already put in a condition on that. Your earthly master, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I want to highlight just one phrase here that describes how we are to do our work. It's work heartily as unto the Lord. Sometimes when we do work, we, we, I don't know, everyone's got different kind of jobs, but sometimes we have jobs that are very repetitious, excuse me, very repetitious. It's very mundane work. Sometimes it's mindless. I mean, how many times can you change a diaper before you, like, want to lose your mind, right? How many times do you want to, you, you, like, you move apart from here, dust it, and move it over here, right? Till you just want to scream. I mean, your just, mind just goes off. You, it, you don't have to think about sometimes the work that we do. And we're very tempted to think when we're doing jobs like this or we do work like this, we're tempted to think, you know, who cares if I show up tomorrow? Like, who cares if I do this job? What difference does this make that I did it this way and I just didn't do it that way? Are we not? You guys ever experienced that? Just me? Okay. <laughs> I think we've all experienced that. We're constantly in danger of seeing our work as drudgery. We're constantly tempted. We're doing the same thing today that we did yesterday for the same people that we did for yesterday, seen as a drudgery and doing it begrudgingly over time. We're constantly tempted to say, you know what, I'm going to put the bare minimum effort into my work. Because who really cares and who's going to notice? Who's going to see that in the end, down down the line? Who really will see that? I'm going to put my bare minimum effort into me just like everyone else on my shift because that's what they're doing. They're going to come in late. They're going to leave early and they're just going to piddle their way through their job till the whistle blows. Like Mark Twain once said, many men stop looking for work once they find a job. I mean, that's, that's constantly our temptation and Paul tells us as Christians, no, no, that is not how we work. This is one way that we are set apart from the world as Christians. You, we wear that jersey. We claim that name, the name of the Lord. This is one way that we are different. We work from our heart. That doesn't mean according to our feelings. We don't go to work when we feel like it and call in sick when we don't feel like it. That's not what he means when he says work heartily or from your heart. It, says from, it means from the core of our being, the core of our identity is the motivation for how we go do our job, even the jobs that we don't like. It means that when we show up for work, we show up to work. Do you understand what I'm saying? And here's our motivation. It's not the paycheck, and it is not the perks. It's because we are actually, truly ultimately working for our Lord, whom we love. 
Christians go to work. We go to work actually believing that Jesus is our true and better boss, not our earthly boss. She's not the one that we're clocking in and out of for. He's not the one that we're trying to make sure we get on his good side. You're already on God's good side. You don't need to worry about getting on his good side. And there's your motivation for working with all your heart. He is our true and better boss. Jesus has been a gracious boss. He has been a generous boss to us. Has he not? And so this means something. It means employers, remember that you do not have ultimate authority over your employees. You have a master and a boss as well. And so you'll give an account for how you treated those under your authority while they were in your employment. And so you are called to treat your, employ- your employees justly and fairly in the way that you work them and rest them and compensate them. That is what makes it a joy to work for a Christian. When someone finds out that you're a Christian and you're a boss, people should be lining up to work for you because they know that you're going to treat them well because they know why you're going to work. Employees, this means that we need to remember that our earthly boss may judge our Monday through Friday work because that's all the work he sees, right? That's all the work she sees when we're there in the office. But we have a boss that sees not just our Monday through Friday work, he sees our whole life's work. He sees everything off the clock as well as on the clock. And he's worthy of our best work. Why? Here's why. Because Jesus Christ worked heartily for you and for me on the cross. That was his life's work. Jesus put all of himself into the work of reconciliation and the atonement of your sins and mine. Jesus did not give his bare minimum for you and me. No, he did not. Jesus literally worked himself to the bone. We throw that word around. Jesus did it. He worked himself to death so that you and I would have everything that we needed for life and godliness. That's your boss. That's the only boss that's ever worked for you. That's a good and gracious and generous and loving boss. Go to work for him. Go to work for him. Go to work for him, not them. It's what Christ has done for us that empowers us to work and to live as a Christian family in a world that does not know that Jesus is Lord and that that is a good thing. This is how we show them it's real and it is good. This is how we demonstrate this to the world. May God reshape our families this very week as we hear and apply his word this week. Amen? Let me pray. God, we love you. We thank you, God, for all that you have done for us. We thank you for sending your only son to do what we could not do, who obeyed us, who obeyed you perfectly in every way, who submitted voluntarily and gladly, who led as a servant leader and worked himself to the bone so that we could live forever with you in eternity. There is no God like you. There is no God like that. 
So God, I pray that through that message, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would literally reshape our marriages this week. You would show us what needs to change in light of your good lordship in our families and in our work. May we be a blessing to our bosses and our blessing to our coworkers this week, to our children, to our parents, and to our spouses. May you reign long and forever, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.